Amanda's final stand. When I was in high school, a whole bunch of football players got beat by a group of D&D nerds. You read that right. Old Gridiron Gary and his Neanderthal knuckleheads got themselves bested by Dungeon Master Mike and his merry band of adventurers, Dark Elf Derek and Amanda the Witch Queen. I don't mean to make light of the situation, because it wasn't funny, but you have to understand how singular an occurrence something like that was. In 1993, the social striations established by The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, and Some Kind of Wonderful were firmly in place. So when a bunch of sword and sorcerers won up the Commandants of Cool, it was a monumental occurrence. There were actually four of us in our little dweeb clatch, the aforementioned Mike, Derek, and me, and then there was Rodney. Rodney the Ranger, that is. It's him that this part of the tale is about. We met in an after-school book club put on by our favorite librarian, Mrs. Dawson, to discuss the Dark Cauldron series. To say we was obsessed would be an understatement. All of us had read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, of course. But I can say with confidence that nobody else in our grade had also read Howl's Moving Castle, The Gunslinger, Watership Down, and countless editions of Weird Tales magazine. Mrs. Dawson expanded our reading horizons into science fiction, and within a year, we devoured Dune, and Foundation, and Ender's Game, and Starship Troopers, and Fahrenheit 451, and A Wrinkle in Time, and The War of the Worlds, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Making the leap from hanging out after school arguing over whether or not Fiverr and Hazel qualified as true fantasy heroes, or who could beat who in a battle, Gandalf or Roland DeShane, Gandalf of course, to building our own worlds, characters, and stories was as natural as red tape to a Vogon. This particular adventure started when Rodney decided to level up and try out for the football team. It wasn't so unusual for one of our clan to ditch the fellowship for a few months at a time in order to play sports, me and Rodney, or focus on violin, Mike, or help out with the literary magazine, Derek. Out of all of us, though, Rodney was the most athletic, even more than me. But he played lacrosse and soccer, two pursuits that seemed to fit into our vision of ourselves as counterculture warriors. Heck, me being a female athlete alone was enough to elevate me to exotic status, and Rodney's two sports of choice were associated with Europeans and socialism and mass transit systems and abstract art. When he decided to join the football team, it was, well, to use one of Daddy's favorite phrases, like Dylan going electric. Why would you want to do that, I asked. We were sitting in Mike's basement when Rodney broke the news, our current campaign laid out on his dad's old poker table. An uncomfortable silence had settled over everyone, and I only said it to break the tension. Play football? Rodney said. I don't know. Why do you play soccer or field hockey? Yeah, but football's for jocks, Mike chimed in, and soccer isn't. You know what I mean. Rodney, I said. The guys on the football team are a bunch of dumb jerks. So? That doesn't mean I'm going to be one. Brett Barber pulled Derek's swim trunks off at the Y when we were in fifth grade, remember? Thanks, Amanda, Derek said. And Thor Tucker elbowed Mike in the face last year in the Commons. Jeez, Amanda. Rodney was not to be persuaded. Come on, guys. It's me. It'll be fine. It wasn't. Rodney became a jock in the worst sense of the word faster than I think even he believed was possible. One week after his first practice, I saw him standing in the Commons talking to Brett. I said, hey, Rodney, and he barely returned the greeting. A week after that, Derek tried to get his attention at lunch, and Rodney ignored him. And a week after that, I was coming out of the bathroom when I saw him and Thor coming down the hallway and Mike and one of his friends from orchestra heading toward him. Thor whispered something in Rodney's ear, and when Mike and his friend passed, Rodney shouldered Mike so hard that he flew up against the cinder block wall and dropped all his books. I wasn't going to let that happen, 
No, sir. I ran up to him while he and Thor were high-fiving each other and gave him a taste of his own. I might have been a girl, but I wasn't Derek or Mike, who, between the two of them, probably had never played more than 12 hours of any kind of sport. I'd spent my time going up against girls bigger than Rodney, scary farm girls with horse necks and iron-plated forearms. I squared my shoulders and launched from the legs, making sure to catch him in the chest, and knocked him right to the ground. Thor took one look at his fallen comrade, mouth agape, and laughed. Rodney wasn't so happy about it. He scrambled to his feet, yelling, What's your problem? You're my problem, Rodney. You think you're so big and tough now that you're on the football team? How'd all your football buddies like to know your D&D character's name? Or that you cried at the end of Watership Down? Shut up! Screw you, Rodney! Damn, Hot Rod, Thor said. You gonna let some lesbo talk to you that way? Lesbo? That's the first time I ever heard somebody refer to me as that. I pushed Thor so hard in his chest that his voice shook. Shut up, Thor! Thor wasn't no Rodney. He didn't have no compunction about hitting girls. His face went dark and he balled his hands into fists. But before he could do anything, Mr. X appeared and said, Mr. Vance, Ms. Jet, is there a problem? The kids that had gathered around us, eager to see the situation explode, skedaddled immediately. Even Thor, who went from about to hit me to about to cry. No, sir, I said. I'm fine. Mr. Vance? I'm fine, Roddy muttered. What was that? I said I'm fine. Mr. X gave him a nice long look. The bell rang, and for once, Rodney looked a little anxious. Can I go now? Yep, go ahead. Can I go now? Not we, but I. That told me all I needed to know. Remember when I said something about a group of plucky nerdlingers taking on popular kids and coming out ahead? Well, that was a lie. Stuff like that rarely happens in reality. In reality, the bullies and the jocks win, hands down. At least for a little while. Time wounds all heals. My nana used to say that. I always thought she was saying heals, H-E-A-L-S. But it wasn't until what happened to Rodney made the news, local and national, that I realized she was using it as an insult, H-E-E-L-S. Almost a year after I took Rodney down in the hallway, he and Thor and about a half dozen other meatheads got put in jail for rape. Turns out they'd started a little hazing tradition for the incoming freshman football players. From what I read in the Freelance Star, it started out innocent enough. Making them do extra laps after practice, having them ask popular upperclassmen girls out on dates. But boys is dumb. That's science. Not all of them, of course. And of course, I've met me some mighty thick members of the female persuasion. But boys' frontal lobes, the part of the brain that's responsible for impulse control and executive decision-making, don't normally develop until their early 20s. So instead of doing the responsible thing, keeping the hazing mild and innocent, Rodney, or should I call him Hot Rod, and his idiot friends doubled down and got nasty. The article didn't go into too much detail, but some of the more salacious words I remembered were digital penetration, sodomy, and wooden broomstick. Man. For all their talk about how tough and manly they was, and about how gay people ain't real men, high school football players certainly is one of the most repressed group of homosexuals I ever did know. So how did the nerds come out on top? Mike. His little brother, Neil, was one of the kids hot riding all his friends assaulted. Tried to commit suicide one afternoon after football practice, but Mike walked in on him and stopped it. When Mike asked him why he'd done it, Neil spilled the beans about what they did to him. Mike snapped. I read about most of what happened in the paper, but he told me everything after his parents paid his bail. They grabbed his billy club, I bought at Corky's, and headed straight for that asshole's house. I don't know what I was going to do. About halfway there, I started to calm down a little. 
I was thinking maybe I could get an apology out of him. But when I knocked on the door and Rodney opened it and saw me, he had this look on his face, this smug look. What do you want? He said. Amanda, other than D&D, I'd never thought about hurting somebody in my life. But when Rodney said that, something broke in me. I'll never forget the look on his face when he saw the club in my hand. The way that sneer turned into surprise. I'm not going to lie, it felt good. For someone whose battles occurred with the pencil and 12-sided die, Mike certainly did him some damage. He broke two of Rodney's fingers, his elbow, and blacked his eye so bad his retina detached. Rodney got himself put in the hospital by a nerdlinger. When the cops came for Mike, he told him exactly what he'd done and why he'd done it. After a short investigation, Rodney and Thor and several other kids were arrested and brought up on charges. Ended up serving nine months in juvie and two years on house arrest. And Nana was right. Time really did wound all heels. All right, back to the hive world. And me and Berenice standing out on the sidewalk in front of St. George's Church while G-men in dark green suits menaced us on all sides. I tried to pull her closer to me, but she started squirming and protesting. Mrs., I can't breathe! Where could I run? There were people all up and down the sidewalk and cars choking the street. G-men started waving people back, yelling, Move! Move! Run now! I backed up, deciding at that moment to turn and dip back into the church, and then... What? Hide under a pew? Hope the green mist seeped back up from the basement so we could travel back to our world? That was an idiot plan, but one I didn't have to put into place, because before I could execute it, the G-men in green was there. They grabbed me by the shoulder and... Holy smokes. They pushed me away. Get out of here, now! One of them yelled. Berenice and I stumbled off the curb, and a car honked and swerved to avoid us, and turning back to the church, I saw a kid standing in front with red double doors. He was dressed all in red, too. Blood red. Strapped around his chest was a khaki canvas vest. Divine wind! Certain death! He screamed. The G-men tackled him, and they all fell into the church, and then the world exploded, and everything went white. She's a miracle. I opened my eyes. Everything was blurry. I could see figures hovering over me, smelled smoke, felt like someone had plugged my ears with cotton. I was in pain, so much pain. My head throbbed like someone had clubbed me in the base of the skull. Trying to move was like swimming in syrup. But I felt the overwhelming need to run, to get out of there, to, she's awake. Miss, you need to calm down. I tried to sit up, but the pounding got worse and the dizziness doubled. A gentle hand on my chest held me down. I tried to speak. Miss, listen. I'm Joe Kramer. I'm a doctor. Don't try to talk. Just relax. Where? What? It's an attack. You suffered a concussion and some scratches, but that's it. She's a miracle! Ma'am, please step away. We need the space. But you saw what happened. Almost the whole church was blown up, but she's perfectly okay. Ma'am, please, if that door hadn't landed on her, I'm going to have to insist. I sat straight up, ignoring the pain. Berenice! I was laid out flat on the other side of Princess Anne. Smoke clouded the air. Sirens blared all around me. I think I saw an arm in the middle of the street. A green fedora rolled by in the wind. Who's Berenice? Joe Kramer was young and handsome. He was dressed in a white shirt and wool trousers, and his hair was slicked back and short, and his shirt was covered in blood. She's my, my... Your daughter? I shook my head. Cousin, she's only eight. Where is she? A hearse pulled up, and out jumped a couple of men carrying doctor's bags. 
One ran over to a woman sitting on the bank steps and holding a crying baby. Another ran over to a man lying face down on the street. He put his fingers up to the man's neck, looked sadly down, and moved on. I tried to get up again, and then another explosion rocked the street. The front of the bank shifted forward, and parts of the other buildings clattered all around. Joe Kramer threw himself over me, grunting as the debris hit him on the back. A third bomb went off, this time farther away. The air was thick with smoke, and I could see legs running this way and that. They're crushing me, I said. Joe Kramer coughed as he pushed himself off. His hair was white with dirt and dust. Sorry. I have to find her. No, you need to stay down. I'm not staying here. I'll find her for you. What's her name? Berenice. What does she look like? Um, I... Okay, don't train yourself. Berenice, eight years old. I'll find her. Seconds after he dashed off, Berenice called to me from the alley next to the bank. Nieces! Oh, thank goodness. Berenice! A little blonde head poked out from around the corner, her fingers gripping the bricks. Nieces! Comes and looks! Looks at me! Okay, sit tight. Let me get my legs under me. It took a solid minute, but I finally got up. I'd had a concussion before, plenty of times, and I knew that I'd feel bad for the first 20 minutes or so, but then it would get better. I could walk, barely, and I had to lean up against the bank to stay upright, all of which was why when I finally made it to the alley corner, I doubted exactly what I was seeing. The little girl standing in the alley wasn't Berenice. I mean, it was and it wasn't. Gone was a melon head, gone was the wrinkles, gone was the pointy teeth and the blood-red eyes and the stringy, patchy hair, all replaced by the cutest, button-nosed, most beautiful little fairy tale elf I'd ever seen in my life. Berenice? I said. She looked mortified. I know, missus. I'm hideous, am I? But looks, looks at you. She pulled me down the alley to a darkened window where I could see my reflection perfectly. Just like Berenice, I wasn't me, and I was me. I was tall and strong, with long blonde hair and everything right in its place. All my girlish features had disappeared. The baby fat, the round face, the awkward nose. I'd grown up. I looked like my mama. I was... I was... You're beautiful, missus! More beautifuler than ever before! I had to admit it. She wasn't wrong. I was startled out of staring at myself by the sound of a truck pulling up on the street. Sirens filled the air, old-timey sirens like I used to hear on Hogan's Heroes and Car 54, Where Are You? And I knew it was time to get out of there. The question was, where could we go? A troop transport pulled up filled with boys all wearing the same green uniforms Gomez Gomez had worn before, you know, months ago when he tried to catch me at the bonfire at her camp park. That lit a fire under me. Come on, Berenice, I said. I started pulling her down the alley in the opposite direction. We gotta go. Where, missus? Where? Walking was hard. My lower back twinged with each step. But it felt like if I didn't get out of there soon, one of them green shirts was bound to recognize me no matter how much I'd grown up. My face was still my face, after all. And I didn't want to know what would happen if they did. I don't know, Berenice. She trotted behind me. But what about the handsome man? Handsome man? Oh, he was tall and slim, and he liked the Jew, he did. I could tell. A few of the green shirts had occupied the alley, standing with their backs to us. I don't know, Berenice. Maybe we'll see him some other time. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. It wasn't difficult avoiding attention. All eyes were on the bomber. I could have taken off my clothes and gone gimping down Princess Anne Street waving a flag and nobody would have noticed. I steered us toward Route 1 without really thinking about it, but when another couple of troop transports unloaded a company of green shirts to patrol the north end of the city, I cut for the river. 
More posters of my face had been plastered on every light pole, and they hung in every storefront window we passed, too. After the fifth one in as many steps, I thought it wise to keep my head down. I wasn't the only one the high was looking for, I guess, because I came across more wanted posters for other people. Didn't recognize any of them until I passed one last store, a junk shop on the corner of Princess Anne and Route 1. The face in the poster shocked me to stillness. It was Vlad. Vlad Sokolov. The last time I'd seen him, he'd been corkscrewed by Principal Green, but I guess he got over it. He was older now, his hair long, face worn and grizzled, but he had the same sharp features I remembered. He had a different air about him, too, and I think it was his eyes. They were piercing, intense, angry. None of that was as shocking as what was written on the poster, though. Wanted, it said. Waldo Sokolov, Force Edition. Waldo Sokolov? Waldo? It was too much of a coincidence to be false. Vlad was Waldo. Waldo was Vlad. Huh. Berenice came up beside me, rattling the front page of a newspaper. Mrs. Mrs. Looks! Stop, Berenice. But looks! I took the paper but didn't look at it. I folded it and put it in my back pocket instead. Berenice saw the poster and said, Who is that, Mrs.? A friend's? Yeah, he's a friend. A real important friend. A siren ramped up in the distance, and I thought I heard a gunshot. Berenice tugged on my hand. No time to look, Mrs. We must flees. You said so. I know, I know, Berenice. I had a hard time getting down the hill from River Road to the bank, and climbing over the rocks wasn't a treat neither, but it was worth it when we finally made the water's edge. It was quiet down there, peaceful. Hobos or high school kids had set up a bunch of logs and stumps around a fire pit, and I took my ease on one of them, sitting down with a grateful groan. Mrs. as hurt she is, Berenice said. Yeah, I'm surprised you ain't. Oh, no, no, no. Mrs. falls on me, protects me from the boom. Oh, I see now. Well, maybe you was the miracle that lady was talking about. It was colder down there by the water, and I wrapped my arms around myself, thinking that maybe I should put that fire pit to use. But I worried about the smoke and them teams of green shirts. Would they see it and investigate? Berenice kept a steady eye on me. She sat down on a log to my left and mimicked my posture, stuck her leg out, wrapped her arms around herself. What are we going to do for supper, Mrs.? I don't know, Berenice. I could hunt the critters. Thinking about the kind of critters she'd bring back made my stomach click. I don't think that'll be necessary, Berenice. But what will we eat? I'm starving! I don't know, Berenice. Let me think for a minute. And just like that, her whining turned into a full-on fit. She threw herself to the ground, crying and moaning and slamming her fists against the dirt. Berenice, shut up, I hissed. You'll draw attention to us. But I'm hungry, hungry, hungry! I squatted over and patted her on the back, trying to get her to be quiet, but nothing would work. Then something started to thrash around in the woods. It thrashed and thrashed, finally punctuating it all with a feral snort. Berenice stopped her crying and snapped her head in the direction of the noise. A food! She cried. Then she popped up and ran into the brush, sending up her signature uulation in the wake. I watched her go, muttering, good goodness, under my breath. She crashed around a good bit ooing and on and missing and who knows what. And I couldn't help it. I laughed. If she was in any danger, I'd know about it by now. Hanging around Berenice was like hanging around a talking cartoon animal. I sat down on the log and watched the water slide by. It was calming sitting there, even with all the commotion going on behind me. A bird called up river, and a stiff breeze ruffled the water, reminding me that it was November. 
If things was normal, if aliens hadn't invaded the world and killed my daddy and at least a billion others and turned everybody else into Max, we'd be getting ready for Thanksgiving. My teachers would be putting up posters with turkeys on them or handing out connect-the-dots worksheets that, when we saw for X, ended up looking like leaves or gourds or pilgrim hats. Every weekend there'd be some kind of celebration or another, a pumpkin festival, a maze maze, a hayride, wine tastings, Oktoberfests, cookouts. The weekend before the holiday, Daddy and his friends used to build themselves up a big old bonfire out in the west field. Said he needed to do it to clear out the deadwood and scrub. And as much as that might have been true, he also did it as an excuse to hang out with his friends and drink beer and smoke joints and cook steaks and have himself a grand fall bash. We didn't do a whole bunch of Celebrate Turkey Day specifically, which is why it was one of my favorites. Some people invited tons of folks over and cooked way too much food and didn't even eat half of it. We didn't know that many people, not people that was close to us. And even if Daddy was still in contact with his brothers and sisters, I don't think they'd come out. Y'all already know enough about Uncle Zeus to understand why he'd never show up. But there was a reason his sisters didn't just leave the farm, but the entire state. Heck, one even lived overseas. So rather than worry the issue, we did our own thing. We slept in and had coffee out in the back porch, and sometime around noon he'd start cooking the turkey. I was responsible for the mashed potatoes and green beans, and in between mine and the meat, he heated up the rolls and worked on his famous mac and cheese. We ate at three or four, and then tucked ourselves in for a full evening of football. Later on, we ate leftovers and had ourselves a hot buttered whiskey. Well, Daddy did. I had me a hot chocolate. As I was thinking about all this, letting my mind wander, dangerously I should say, given my current predicament, I remembered the newspaper Berenice so desperately wanted me to read before. I pulled it out of my back pocket and unfolded it. The headline screamed, Massive Monster Menaces Multitudes, over a grainy picture of what looked like a horned ape stuck to a kanga- Oh my gosh. That was a kangate! But how did it get here? Suddenly I came around to the fact that I hadn't heard nothing but the shushing wind and the chuckling water for at least a minute. Normally that would have been a nice thing, but anybody who'd ever been around a person like Berenice knew that her kind didn't agree with quiet, and the only reason for her to give the world the slightest respite from her voice was because she was injured, dead, or disappeared. I stood up and turned my back to the river. Berenice! I called. She didn't respond. Berenice! Don't you go messing around now! This ain't the time! Still nothing. I waited a tick before picking my way through the brush and found myself in a little clearing. The ground had been trampled by many feet, and fur littered the area. I squatted down and picked up one of the hairs. It was thick and coarse and black. Berenice! She was gone. Now I was really lost. Stuck in the hive world without a clue as what to do next. So Waldo was Vlad, but how was I supposed to find him? And what would I do if I was lucky enough to find him? And what was going on with all that divine wind nonsense? Suicide bombings? Certain kill? And if St. George's Church was a conduit through which I was supposed to get back to my world, how was I supposed to do that now that it was all blown up? Was I stuck there for good? Would Dr. H get his machine set up? Would my friends come and rescue me? I don't know how long I sat there. An hour or two? The sun settled high over the river. Must have been gone noon. At the very least, I was going to have to find a place to hide out. And I guess I was going to have to steal some food, too. A thought scratched the surface of my mind, the briefest edge of an idea, and I rejected it almost as soon as it came. But the longer I sat there, the more I realized it was the only answer. I had no other place to go, no one else to rely on, 
And even though even entertaining the idea sent electric pulses of anxiety up my legs, and even though my belly flipped and went cold, another feeling overrode both of those. And that feeling was anger. It was hot enough to stand me up and carry me away from the bank and up into the neighborhood on the other side of Route 1. I was going back to the house where my family lives. Mama and Ruth Grace might have been dead, but there was one person left I think I needed to have some words with. The neighborhood was dead quiet. No kids playing out in the streets or on their lawns. No dogs barking. Made me think that maybe something unspeakable had happened. Somehow my presence almost a year before had caused some kind of crackdown or purge. Sirens blared in the distance, and when I turned around, I saw black smoke smudging against the blue sky. As empty as everything seemed to be, none of the houses were in bad shape. Lawns had been mowed, gardens weeded. I even saw a trickle of smoke filtering out of a chimney. But the house, the one those things that looked like my parents lived in, or used to live in, looked haunted. Vines wound up the overflowing gutters. Leaves piled up in the driveway. One of the chains that held the swing hanging from the magnolia on the front lawn was broke, and the seat dangled like a loose tooth. The metal hanger squeaked in the breeze. I paused on the sidewalk, trying to gin up enough courage to knock on the front door. It should have been easy. Them things didn't scare me. I'd face Max and tentacles, death balls and murderers, polar crabs, magic girls, melon heads, mad scientists, hybrid monsters. And even though they was all scary enough on their own, and even though I got myself cut, cracked, and concussed in the process, I always managed to come out on top. Y'all know that. But each time I thought about taking that first step toward the door, I kept seeing Ruth Grace's brain spilling out on the carpet, or Mama's mouth filled with wiggling tentacles. It was the tiniest things that goosed my wagon. My stomach. It rumbled as loud as an earthquake. No matter how old anybody gets or how important they are, bodily functions were always funny. Period. If you expected a Spotsylvania girl, and a Spotsylvania farm girl at that, to be well acquainted with a panoply of them kind of things, from farts to queefs to burbles and squelches, well, you'd be right. But this particular Spotsylvania farm girl was still only a teenager, and I snorted at the ridiculousness of it all. There I was, stuck in an alternate reality with no hope of escape, having just barely survived an attempted suicide bombing by some kind of anti-Episcopalian terrorist organization, and all my stomach could think about was eat. Well, old stomach of mine, if eat was what you wanted, eat was what you'd get. The inside of the house was no better than the outside. It was dark, for one, and it smelled like mold, which made sense because black patches of stuff kaleidoscoped all over the walls and ceiling. The carpet squished when I walked on it, not too deep with moisture, but deep enough. I found some canned soup in one of the cupboards. Chicken noodle, tomato, beef stew. The cans weren't dented or bloating, and the chicken noodle didn't hiss when I cracked it in half on the counter. No gas for the rain, so I held the can over my mouth and gulped it down cold, and my goodness, did that taste good. Some of it spilled down my cheek, and I scooped it back in with the palm of my hand, moaning as I chewed the noodles. I picked up a can of tomato and was about to bash it on the counter when Daddy appeared in the doorway. You're not going to heat him up? Rose. A huge part of me wanted to chuck that can of tomato soup at his head, but just as large a part of me wanted to cry again. Tears welled up in my eyes, and my face flushed, and, Dang it! When was this going to stop? When was I going to stop reacting to him like I was a kid? And it wasn't even him. It was a fake, a copy, some disgusting monster that had taken on his skin. That helped. Thinking of him as an it. And the it was the hive, 
The same thing that killed my real daddy. The same thing that killed millions and millions of real daddies all over the world. I made the choice. Right then and there, I made the choice. I had to grow a shell, make it hard. He wasn't allowed in no more. You're not him. I know. And why do you keep on wearing him like he's yours? He looked down at his arms as if seeing him for the first time. He was still wearing the same clothes I last saw him in when I was running from that very house, trying to find some way to escape back home. It isn't my choice. Oh, yeah? Why not? He looked at me, really looked at me, like he wanted me to understand, like he needed me to take his side. I felt myself soften, but stopped it. It isn't right, he said. What isn't right? What's happening to you, to your people? Yeah, I got that. You've got to understand. Not all of us want it. All of us? All of who? All I've ever seen is them damn highs and tentacles and Max and Max? The dead people. The dead people you used to kill us, to eat us. He looked down and pressed his lips together. And at first I thought he was smiling. My blood began to boil. You think this is funny? No. No. I didn't know what you called them. We called them something different. When the Kuswash, Ruyushbish, invaded us. Invaded you? <laughs> Baloney. How dumb do you think I am? Invaded you. It's true. All right. Whatever. He took a step for me, and I held up the can of soup. Felt kind of dumb doing it, to be honest. Without the element of surprise, a can of soup was about as useful as a lizard in a boxing match. But he stopped. Then he held out his hand. Let me show you. You've got to be kidding me. I was only a child when they came and took my planet. We don't have families, not like yours. We have tribes. And when the Uyushbish landed, they, they wiped mine out. Every single one. Okay, so what? Now you work for them, right? You don't understand. Oh, I think I understand plenty. It was horrible. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. Not like this. He was faster than I thought, and he reached out and grabbed my wrist, and then I wasn't in the kitchen anymore. I was in a jungle somewhere, surrounded by strange purple trees. The ground was dark, rich, brown, and huts made out of the red roots of the trees formed a village in front of me. At my feet lay dozens of bodies. They were people. Maybe not human, but close enough. Men, women, children, mostly children. All of them done the same way they tried to do me and Daddy, my real Daddy. Chests with holes the size of basketballs, their bodies drained from the inside out. Damn it! I pulled my arm out of his grip and I was back in the kitchen again. I didn't even think. I reacted. I slugged him in the jaw with a can of soup and sent him reeling back. Don't you ever do that to me again, you hear? His face was covered in red, and at first I thought I broke him until I realized it was tomato soup. It was also running all over my hand. I cussed and threw the busted can in the sink. One of Mama's, not Mama, she was not my Mama, a dish towel hung from the stove handle, and I used it to wipe the soup off. After a second, I threw it to him. He caught it and gave me a slight nod. Those are your people, then? Yes. You're not a part of the hive? They forced me to be. Well, then what's the difference? The difference? Don't you get it? You're still fighting. You're damn right I'm still fighting. You're going to blame me for that? You got lucky. Lucky? Did you really just say that? Your planet it, My daddy is dead. My friends are dead. Everybody I ever knew is dead. Vlad, Ray, Maggie Mae, 
even Uncle Zeus. Tell me I'm lucky again. Your planet didn't change seasons the way it does. You'd be just like me right now. So what? It does, and I'm not. And that's the difference. That's why we're doing it. Doing what? Fighting back. The bombings this morning? Those were us. You mean the one that almost killed me? That wasn't on purpose. There will be more. There already has been. There'll be even more than that. I let that sink in. If what he was telling me was true, a motion in the doorframe caught my attention, and my eyes shifted over his shoulder. Ah, oh, hell, I said. It was Joe Kramer. and He wasn't wearing his day clothes no more. No, sir. He was dressed in full hive regalia. Gray-green overcoat, officer's hat with that black leather brim, death's head insignia underneath a strange-looking badge, a hive encircled by squirming tentacles. I knew I recognized you, Miss Amanda, he said. The thing that looked like Daddy closed his eyes. Then he opened them again. Run. He turned and jumped on Joe Kramer. There was a door off the kitchen that led to the backyard, but it opened up right when I moved for it, and three green-shirted kids about my age burst in. I tried to skirt around the kitchen table, but Joe Kramer lurched in from the living room entrance and threw me up against the wall, holding me there with a Kansas City forearm. I gagged. Do you know how many people you killed? He was choking off my wind, but I was angry enough to rasp an answer. It wasn't me. There were children in that church. Didn't do it. Murderer. I spit in his face and he headbutted me. I felt my nose crunch and one of the green shirts sidled up next to him. Want us to take her out back, Mr. Kramer? No, Joe Kramer said. Take her and that traitor to the stadium. Time to get rid of this scum once and for all. I've been knocked out plenty enough over the last 12 months to know that I didn't like it. But that didn't mean I wanted to be conscious while the green shirts dragged me out the door to what was almost certainly, once again, my certain doom. And it didn't mean I wasn't scared, neither. Body don't never get used to facing its death no matter how many times it happens. Not that the green shirts cared one bit how I felt about things. They clapped a pair of handcuffs on me and shoved me out the door. When I struggled, they'd punch me in the stomach. I saw it coming and I flexed and whatnot, but as physical as I've been for the past few months, I really haven't been doing any sit-ups and crunches and torso twists and all the other things that would have made my abs stronger. And I felt that punch all the way in my back. Felt like one of my ribs snapped. I tripped on the way up to the hearse they had parked in the driveway and felt my old brake flare up again. I was a proper mess. Crunched nose, bruised ribs, and a leg that didn't feel right. They shoved me in the back and piled in next to me, making sure to put at least three of them between me and the man or thing or alien or whatever that looked like my daddy. None of them said a word as we pulled out of the driveway and aimed for downtown. The road was clear as we crossed Route 1, steered past the hospital, which is on Fall Hill, and on to Washington. The stadium. The stadium. Kramer must have been talking about Mari. Wasn't no other nearby. We paused at the corner of William to let an ambulance scream by, and I thought, good, another one of them bastards is hurt or dead. You don't have to do this. That was Daddy, or the thing pretending to be him. Shut up, one of the green shirts said. There is another way. Divine wind will... One of the boys next to him raised his elbow and crashed it down on his nose. Blood poured down his face. We said shut up! Daddy didn't say nothing more. His chin hung on his chest and his head bobbed as the hearse swept us toward our fate. The stadium was lit up as they pulled around to the gate. More green shirts, armed, guarded it. One approached the driver, who rolled down the window, and they exchanged something in a language I didn't know, and the green shirt signaled back to the gate guards, and they pulled it open, and the hearse drove onto the field. The place was packed. Men, women, children, 
all dressed in green, all cheering and jeering as the boys pushed us out of the hearse and marched us into the middle. It was deja vu all over again. Remember back in October of last year when Seb Mack lured me and Daddy out to his mama's broke-down old trailer under the guise of rescuing his sisters, but instead his mama breathed out green poison to Daddy and me, and they drug us out into the country and tied us down in a field of dead bodies to have our chest stove in by a killer tentacle? Yep. Multiply that by five, and that's what was going on in the middle of Maury Stadium. They let up a horrible cheer when they seen me. All the dead bodies lay strewn all over the field, forming a semicircle around one big hole in the end zone. All of them done the same way Seb Mac wanted me done. The stink made me want to puke, and I do believe I gagged and dry heaved my fair share, and my broke ribs screamed with each one, adding more misery to my already sorry condition. After they pinned me to the ground and posted a green shirt at my head, and after they'd done the same thing to the thing acting like my daddy, another hearse drove up with more prisoners, and they frog-stepped all them out too and threw them to the ground. All total, there must have been about 20 of us out there about to die. The boy they put next to me looked familiar, like familiar familiar, and even though my brain wanted to panic and scream and cry, and even though it was tough to concentrate with all the yelling and booing and catcalling coming from the stands, I forced myself to get a closer look, and good googly moogly, I couldn't believe it. Vlad? I said. He was in the midst of a full-blown panic attack, stating, not judging, eyes rolling around in his head, chest pumping like a steam train. My feet was tied to a stake in the ground, and just like before, they bound my hands together on my chest. I guess they never learn. So I raised up my arms, half-rolled to the side, and slugged him in the face. Vlad! He stopped freaking out for a tick and looked at me, and his already wide eyes went wider, and he said, Amanda? Hey, what are, how, it's a long story. I might ask the same of you. Last time I saw you, they drugged you simple. I thought you'd turned. Yeah, they tried. He held up his own bound hands. Didn't take. Well, that's good news. I've been looking for you. What's with all this Waldo stuff? Well, that's a long story, too. All right. Well, you can tell it to me when we get out of here. The green shirts posted to us each took a step forward and kicked us in the head. Shut your mouths, they barked. The crowd hushed and sat down. And then, as if bitten by some invisible clarion, they started to sing. It was the same atonal melody from the first time that happened to me, only worse and louder, 20, 30, 40 times louder than before. It sounded like a truck crash or worse, screeching, whining, creaking metal on metal, major and minor keys mixed in with some I ain't never heard before. The ground rumbled and shook, and at our feet crowned the egg dome of a hive, the hive it would seem, judging by its size. It rose high above the stadium, pushing dirt and rocks out of the ground, Dozens of tentacles pushing out of its own skin. The people in the stadium began to sway and moan, sick with ecstasy, and the hive responded, vibrating its own deep bass frequency, a frequency so low that I couldn't hear it, but I felt it, in my chest, in my bones, in my bowels. And I couldn't help it. My head filled with fear. Then the killing began. This time the tentacles were speedy, purposeful, and they plunged down through the air, plunged into the chest of the victims tied to the ground, starting on my right and heading, one by one, chest by chest, for me. Here's the thing about dying. It ain't like the movies. When I think about what happened to me out in that field, me lying in the grass on the 50-yard line, I think of pictures I've seen in history books. Jews in half-dug ditches staring up at kids playing soldier in black uniforms, Hutus on front lawns with machetes, mass graves in Srebrenica, 
When I read about those things, I, I don't know how I felt. I dramatized it, made it feel real and unreal at the same time, like it was in a movie. But that wasn't the truth, was it? The truth was, yeah, sure, it was scary and horrible, but it was also numbingly normal. There was the sky and there was the ground. Trees ringed the stadium. And after I was gone, after the hive had sucked the blood from my body and the marrow from my bones, the sky would still be there, the ground would still be there, the trees would still be there. It was a proper existential crisis, I'll tell you what. And even though I didn't know it then, I pretty much defined nihilism. Here came the tentacles, one by one. Thud to my right, down the line. Oh well, it was my turn next. I looked at Vlad. His eyes were closed tight. Part of me wanted to close mine, too. Who wanted to witness their own end that way? So gross and violent? But I couldn't. I wouldn't. I didn't. I let my head roll to the other side, and there were all the people in the stadium, swaying like beasts in their bloodlust, singing their horrible song. Their faces flickered, dropping their human shells, revealing their true selves. Some were not much different from human beings. Maybe they had blue skin or red skin or pale white skin. And maybe they had ridges on their noses or flaps of skin hanging off their necks or heavy boned foreheads like shields. But they were balanced. Two eyes, two ears, a nose, and a mouth. Others, though. Shoo-wee! They were bug-looking things, slug-looking things, things with hairy crowns and sparkling horns, things with no faces at all, things with two faces on one side. If puking didn't hurt my ribs so much, I would have emptied out all that soup all over the field. All the noise disappeared, sucked out of the air like I'd been transported into a vacuum. A tentacle waved over me. Its mouth opened up. I saw the rows of teeth, and it shot down. I couldn't help it. I closed my eyes. Then a roar broke through that vacuum, and the world raged back into my head. Chaos and confusion, bellows and bedlam, gunfire erupted all around as something knocked me upside the temple and flipped me over. Boy, did I eat dirt. Got it in my eye, my ear, the corner of my mouth. When the ringing stopped, and when I realized that the tentacle hadn't eaten me and that I wasn't dead, I pushed off the ground so that I was on my knees. All that screaming and craziness? It wasn't death come to me hoofed and horned. It was... Well, actually, it was horned just not hoofed. What I mean to say is it was the can gapes, two of them. One of them thundered through the stands, sending green robes flying. The other one had grabbed the tentacle meant for me by each end of its mouth and broke it open as I watched. It was the most glorious thing I'd ever seen. But you want to know something more glorious than that? Berenice was clinging to its back. Nieces! Nieces! She cried. We comes for you! Holy moly. Mrs. This is Cherry! Cherry, say hi's to the Mrs. One of the green shirts unslung his carbine and shot Cherry in the shoulder. Cherry grunted and took a step back, then her eyes narrowed in on the green shirt and fired again, missing this time. She pounded forward, tearing up the grass, but the green shirt stood his ground, calmly aiming for her head. Here's one who'd been in battle before, I thought. He won't miss this time. So I lurched forward and grabbed his foot with my bound hands, and it was just enough to send him off balance. The shot went wild, and then Cherry was on him. But the fight wasn't over yet. Wasn't much two can gapes and a melonhead kid could do against the force the hive had put together. Once the green robes in the seats got over their initial shock, they banded together against the lone can gape. Some of them leaped on it, others sang a tentacle in its direction, and soon it had been taken down. Cherry roared and beat a path over, pounding the field so hard that she tore the turf up. Mrs. Berenice called. 
Wait for me. I'll be back. I worked myself free of the ropes to tie my wrists together, then helped Vlad, who was already unbinding his feet. We just stood up when the old familiar zing flushed through my body. I could tell by Vlad's expression that he felt it too. She's here, I said. As if it understood, the hive kicked into overdrive, sending tentacles whipping through the air. We ducked and dived as they struck the earth aiming for us. An electric pulse filled the air like a ball of lightning that settled over the stadium, and a brilliant white light blasted out of the middle of the field. Vlad and I were sent flying backward, and three figures emerged from the fading energy. The first was tall and muscular and carrying an automatic rifle. Another was skinny and wearing a lab coat. And the third was short and stumpy with a swollen head perched above a bright red shirt. Timmy Carter, Dr. H, and Bert Holt. Then the white light dimmed altogether, and the girl and all her friends came into focus. Amanda! Timmy Carter cried out. I'm here! His head swiveled around, trying to find me in all the craziness. Can gapes punching green robes, green shirts firing at can gapes. One of them aimed for Berenice sitting on the back of Cherry, fired, and missed. But Bert Holt saw it, and his red eyes burned redder. The green shirt saw him sprinting up on them runty little legs and adjusted his aim. But Bert Holt zigged and juked and spun like Art Monk, and the green shirt couldn't keep up. His shots went wild, and then Bert Holt was on him. I mean literally on him. Ran up his chest, wrapped his legs around the green shirt's neck, and sank his teeth into his eyeball. I turned away before I saw what happened next. Timmy Carter shot at the tentacles as he sprinted for me, the girl and her friends close behind. A crack formed in the front of the hive, and out of the pulsing opened and poured polar crabs. And every green robe in the stadium zeroed in on us. I grabbed Vlad's hand. This is it, Vlad, I said. This is what? Follow me. I pulled him forward to meet the girl at the middle of the field. And she grabbed hold of Brownie's hand, and he grabbed the hand of the girl behind him, and so on and so on down the line until all seven of us were linked up. A bolt of energy shot through our bodies, and we went rigid with the power. It poured out of our eyes, our mouths, our limbs, and then I was the energy, full and furious. I let it fill me up, heal my cracked ribs, my mashed nose, my bruised brain. It filled every cell in me with its power, and I set my sights on the thing that had caused me so much pain and sorrow. I narrowed in on the hive. Before I knew it, the power in me responded. And I sped across the field and slammed into the hive skin and ripped and tore and shredded. And it wasn't just me. It was the girl and Brownie and Vlad and all the other four. And I could hear it, the voice of the hive, screaming in pain as we peeled through layer after layer, spinning around and around like shrapnel, aiming it for the only thing that would finally kill it. I bore in, drilling down, 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 and there it was in front of me, the black heart of the hive started forward but felt something hold me back. It was the girl. She was pure white. All of us were, and we were all floating in the center of the hive. Her eyes blazed silver, and her hair floated above her head, and the power bolted through her mouth. No, she said. We have to do it together. All of us. She and the others fanned out around the heart, holding their arms aloft, and I did the same. Electricity linked our fingertips, a live wire of endless energy. The girl took a deep breath. Now, she cried, and we shot forward, all seven of us, and crashed into the heart. And in the explosion that followed, I knew myself no longer.